Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, as the person says, coming to you from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University, as always, but not speaking for the university, just for myself. The university has plenty of highly paid administrators to speak for the university. I'll just talk for me, and I know our guests will do likewise tonight. Uh, legal matters out of the way. We'll be talking with our guest uh, shortly. This show started in 2004, 10 years ago, uh, and our, or, well, nine, this is our 10th season. And our first guest on the very first show before I was actually the host was James McPherson, uh, who everyone listening to the show knows of and has read works of uh, Battle Cry of Freedom, Abraham Lincoln and the Second American Revolution and so on. And tonight we have a former student of Dr. McPherson, an authority on the Civil War era in his own right, Louis P. Major of the Rutgers University, professor of American studies and history there. And we'll be talking with him about his uh, recent book, Lincoln's Hundred Days, uh, The Emancipation Proclamation and the War for the Union. So we'll get to that shortly. Uh, first, a few uh, business items. Uh, one of them is uh, I was originally planning to come on the show and, and open by uh, shouting out to our scurvy dogs uh, because it was Talk Like a Pirate Day. But then it was I realized actually Talk Like a Pirate Day, the international uh, celebration of pirate lingo, is not until tomorrow, September 19th of 2013. Today is the 18th, so we'll hold off on talking like a pirate, even though uh, everything here at East Carolina University uh, relates to the pirates in some way. At this time, uh, two weeks ago, everyone was in an uproar over the parking situation because of the pirate football team playing a night game during the week. Uh, But it's always something at this university or any other Today was the drilling in the hall, the uh, repairing of the antiquated elevator in the Brewster building that gets us. Uh, it, it's it's hard to describe quite how antiquated, but uh, it it if if it weren't, it, it, I guess we need an elevator because there are people who cannot uh, navigate the stairs. But otherwise, there's no reason ever to wait for the elevator. You can walk up. Uh, to the third or fourth floor a lot faster. But today they were fixing it and drilling at an incredibly loud volume right in the middle of class time. Uh, it was a problem for everybody. Uh, so those are the kind of small, fun things one gets to deal with uh, um, outside of the the bigger, giant problems of uh, funding and, uh, uh, well, and funding. That's That's the big problem. But we're not going to depress ourselves with that kind of talk tonight. We've got uh, a fine show ahead, uh, interesting guests coming up next week. We'll talk with the manager of the historic site that manages the remains of the Confederate ironclad noose, named for the Noose River here in North Carolina. 
she'll her name is Sarah Risty Davis, and she'll be with us. We'll have Stephen Rammeld talking about uh, discipline in the Union Army, uh, and uh, 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 then uh, Eric Jacobson on October 9th. Uh, on October sixteenth, we'll go to uh, Philip Lee, who's written a uh, book about Company H. Uh, I'm sorry if he hasn't written the book about Company H. Everybody's read Sam Watkins' uh, famous memoir, Company H. Uh, he's edited a new edition, annotated, and uh, will t- tell us about that. October 23rd, Alan Gelzo will join us to talk about his new work on the Battle of Gettysburg, which everyone else is talking about. So lots coming up in the month ahead. Uh, we're also just a few... Uh, days away, a week and a few days from the annual Lincoln Colloquium taking place this year on the campus of Knox College in Galesburg, Illinois. And uh, if you get it, if you're anywhere in that part of the country, uh, it's worth it to come by and hear what's being said about Lincoln. Uh, a number of people you've heard on the show uh, will be there: uh, James Oakes, Jennifer Weber. Uh, uh, who else is going to be there? The uh, Michael Burlingame. Uh, be there, Matt Pinsker. Uh, I plan to be there, uh, and uh, a number of others. So I apologize to anyone I'm leaving out, just going by by hasty memory. Of course, Doug Wilson and Roddy Davis are always at Knox College. They'll be there. Uh, it should be a really interesting set of programs, and uh, hope hope you can make it out to the prairies and and hear uh, hear what's going on there. So. Uh, Last item of business to remind you of, as always each week, is the website www.impedimentsofwar.org, where you can find out what's going on with the show, who's been on the show in the past, uh, download past episodes, and otherwise keep track of things. Uh, You can contribute dollars to the show if you're so inclined to help me buy copies of our guests' books when they're publicists are uh, not contacted in time to send me a copy, and our library hasn't gotten one. That occasionally happens. So that's always useful. Uh, If you have contributed to the show in the last couple months with the expectation of receiving uh, a a book copy in return, which was a long-time standing offer, and haven't gotten one, please let me know. But Going forward, I've reached the bottom of the barrel of uh, my own book copies, so there's there's no more to send out, at least for now. Hopefully we can change that. Well, enough chit-chat. Uh, today we have a very interesting book to talk about uh, dealing with, uh, as, as the introduction of the show says, the most critical period in American history. This book deals with the most critical period of that period, the hundred days between the time Abraham Lincoln issued the preliminary emancipation and his signing of the final proclamation, uh, certainly one of the critical moments of the war. And our guest, Lou Major, has written Lincoln's Hundred Days on that topic. Lou, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Thanks, Jerry. Oh, thank you for being on the show. I apologize to you in front of all our listeners tonight for uh, goofing up the schedule a couple of weeks ago when you were originally scheduled to be on, and thanks for your patience in, in coming back tonight. 
Well, I'm, I'm delighted that you could invite me back, and it's, it's appropriate as we are approaching, I suppose, the 151st anniversary of the Preliminary Emancipation Proclamation. And uh, before we begin our discussion, I also want to congratulate you on this, your 10th your season of what is absolutely an essential show. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate that very much. Uh, it, it's, it's one of those things where you never think, oh, I'll do this for 10 years, but uh, you just start doing it, and suddenly the time has gone by. Uh, speaking of time going by, uh, you and I last actually encountered one another regularly, I believe, at Harvard University uh, 20-some years ago now. Uh, yes, that's correct. Uh, I suppose you were a graduate student finishing up. I was a lecturer in history and literature, and uh, I'm delighted that we could be reunited these 20-something years later. Of course, we saw each other under different circumstances back then, uh, usually on the basketball court. I don't know to what extent you continue to play, but I long ago <laughs> hung up my sneakers. You know, I, I just... I... I, I gave my put my sneakers in the goodwill bin literally a week ago, but I haven't played in years. I have been playing uh, uh, soccer with an over fifty uh, team uh, to try to keep it in shape a little bit. But basketball has long since passed me by. Yeah, uh, and uh, I wonder about our other uh, colleagues from those days, Mike Vorenberg or uh, Fran McDonald, and any of those guys if they're still playing. But uh, uh, maybe we'll we'll find out sometime. Yeah. Well. It, it is good to have you here to talk, uh, Lincoln. Some of our listeners may, if they haven't read your book, may have seen you recently in the New York Times. Uh, you had a piece in the Disunion series uh, dealing with uh, the Conklin letter. Uh, how did you get, uh, just first the mechanics, how do you get into that series? Well, it's a terrific series. I've actually been contributing to it from the start, and I'm, I'm mm -hmm. happy to say that uh, I, I, I've, lost track as to how many pieces I've contributed, but probably seven, eight, or nine. And um, they recently actually published a volume uh, edited by Ted mm -hmm. Whitmer called Disunion, which gathers uh, a very robust selection of pieces and also asked people to write special pieces for that. I actually was invited to write the piece uh, giving an overview of, of Lincoln's first two years in office. Uh, not, not an easy thing to do in some thousand words, but... Uh, yeah. But it, it really is a, a, a terrific series, and um, how one gets to write for it uh, is, is, is pretty easy. I think by now, word of mouth, there have been enough contributors that, um, you know, contact somebody who's contributed, and then we'll put you in touch with the editor, and you sort of pitch a piece or a topic, and they decide whether they are interested or have the space or, or uh, whatever the case may be. But uh, I, I, I really think it's a terrific series. It, it really is. I'm, I'm impressed by it all the time. I, I was actually in, in touch with the editor at one time about a piece, and I, I may have let that ship sail, uh, being absorbed uh, in the administrative day-to-day -day stuff here. I, I'm not writing nearly as much as I ought to be. Right, and, and the thing that the, the this union is trying to do is, you know, they're not that obsessed with anniversaries, but mm -hmm. the pieces that are, tend to be around the time of the... Uh, right the sesquicentennial of whatever it is that the person is writing about. So thus my piece, you know, on the, on the Conkling letter, you know, I think it, they, they, they publish it late August, which is good enough because Lincoln mm -hmm. was thinking about it and writing it. And of course it wasn't delivered until early September. But you're, you're certainly in the ballpark. Well, in your book, you, you mentioned the challenge of uh, trying to sum up Lincoln's 
presidency in, in uh, the first two years in a thousand words. Uh, you take on a big challenge in the book when you start out by talking about Lincoln's storytelling. Mm-hmm. And if there's one thing that I've always found difficult as a public speaker, it's to try to convey to an audience uh, the 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 magic of Lincoln's storytelling, which is amply attested. But if you try to tell, if I try to tell one of Lincoln's stories, it does not, it, it doesn't work. Uh, right, right. Tell us about his storytelling. Well, uh, as as is perhaps more well known now, because it was made a feature of Daniel Day Lewis's performance in the uh, in in the Lincoln film. Uh, he told stories. Uh, those stories served multiple purposes. Uh, I think, you know, I argue in part they served simply to get a laugh. Uh, they were the sort of antidote to the more melancholic side, I think, of his temperament and his personality. And he loved a good laugh and he loved a good story. Uh, many of them uh, were a little bit off color in lots of ways. Uh, of course, he also used them didactically, as we know. Uh, he used them as a way to disarm the opposition and to make a point in a colloquial fashion that anyone could understand rather than trying to go into any kinds of deeper policy uh, sorts of considerations. Uh, the, the, the problem with uh, being a historian uh, who wants to write about Lincoln as a storyteller, of course, is, is so many of the stories attributed to him come from long after he died when everybody was dining out on telling stories about the stories that Lincoln allegedly uh, told to them. Uh, Lincoln himself was asked about this at one point in his life, uh, and he said that he thinks of all the stories out there that uh, have been told that perhaps maybe only a third of them or so are ones that he actually told. Uh, I, I tried to take great care to only use those stories for which we have evidence very close to the moment in which he allegedly told it. Uh, thus, you know, George Templeton Strong, who, who, who kept a diary, uh, would go back and write in his diary the story that Lincoln had just told him earlier that afternoon. I, I think things like that get us perhaps a little bit closer to understanding the stories he actually told uh, as opposed to the stories that are attributed to him. Well, he, he did use those stories for a purpose. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the uh, he didn't just tell them just to tell stories. And there's, there's a somewhat there's a wonderful and somewhat long story of, of him telling some uh, Union officers that he doesn't just tell stories for the sake of doing it. But uh, it, it's it's hard to, to find if you're telling it to an audience, the audience needs to know the whole circumstance, the whole context, to appreciate fully what Lincoln is doing. And I think you're right, the movie does a great job of doing that because the audience does know the context by the time Lincoln gets to a story. Right. But it's tough right. uh, for a lecturer to make that clear. Sure. But, you know, for so for example, I mean, and that's what I meant about his stories being didactic and being used intentionally as a point. So on this topic of emancipation, which is the topic of my book, Very early on, Lincoln is asked time and time again by anti-slavery congressmen and newspaper editors, all of whom are pressuring him to take action on on the status of the slaves. And uh, Strong, previously mentioned, comes back and he writes in his diary, you know, the story Lincoln tells, well, you know, that reminds me of a party of Methodist parsons that were traveling in Illinois when I was a boy and had a branch to cross that was pretty bad, ugly to cross, you know, because the waters was up. And they got considering and discussing how they should get across it. 
and they talked about it for two hours, and one of them thought they had ought to cross one way when they got there, and another another way, and then they get quarreling about it till at last an old brother put in, and he says, brethren, this here talk ain't no use. I never cross any river till I come to it. And that's oh, perfect, this. right? That, that's classic Lincoln. It's, 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 you know, I'm not going to talk about it my policy about emancipation because the war has just begun and there are other issues. Uh, I, I, I don't cross a river until I get to it. So that's a pristine, prime example, I think, of Lincoln as a storyteller using a story both to make a point, uh, to, to, to avoid a very delicate political situation at the moment. I think that, that really does capture it, it perfectly. What we'll do, uh, since it's hard to follow a good Lincoln story, uh, impossible to follow up, what we'll do is take a short break now and come back in just a minute. We'll talk more with our guest tonight, Lou Major. He's author of, <clears throat> excuse me, author of Lincoln's Hundred Days, The Emancipation Proclamation and the War for the Union. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. 
If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich here with Lou Major talking about his book, Lincoln's Hundred Days. And I briefly stepped on the announcer's voice there because I'm still getting the hang of the very fancy new uh, uh, rejoins and introductions and other things that the folks here at Voice America have prepared for the show. Until a month ago, uh, this show was, I think, the last, possibly the last uh, show going on World Talk Radio like uh, the last storefront in a dying mall, and then suddenly it moves into the the big new mall across town and uh, the thriving Voice America channel. And it's, it's nice to be here, and they've provided some some cool new introductory materials, and I keep trying to figure out when I'm supposed to come in or, or not. And I, I will get it right eventually. I have, as many, all you listeners know, a Ph.D. from Harvard University, um, which I forgot to capitalize on in our first segment, even though we were talking about it. Uh, but I've done so now, fulfilled my obligation, so we can move forward and resume talking about Abraham Lincoln and the Emancipation Proclamation. Um, Lou, one thing I wanted to clarify with you is the argument that one often hears that the proclamation uh, did not actually uh, free any slaves, that it was not... Uh, really as significant. Uh, there are different varieties of that argument from Lerone Bennett to, uh, 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 to, to more measured versions that are still uh, negative about the, the importance of the proclamation. You wouldn't have written this book if you agreed with that, is my guess, but, but what is your take on, on the significance of the, the document itself? Well, in fact, uh, what my book is, is as strong a case as possible to recover, to reclaim, and to emphasize the significance and centrality of the Emancipation Proclamation as one of the foundational documents in American history, uh, alongside the Declaration of Independence as one of the pole stars of American history. So some may think that perhaps I've gone too far the other way, but, but, but I don't believe so. I, I believe uh, that to study this document and the evolution of this document. And, and Jerry, that's critical. I mean, that's why, if I can bring us back to the 100 mm-hmm. days, you know, lots of people just go to January 1st, 1863, and we can certainly come back to that and, and what it did do and what it didn't do on January 1st, 1863, and the ways in which, over the next two years, uh, Lincoln continued to defend and, uh, one could argue, even become more radical in many ways about uh, proposing uh, not just emancipation and abolition, but rights for the freedmen. But this critical period between September 22nd and January 1st is the period that led me to write the book because it had been largely overlooked, I felt, by historians. There was a, a brief chapter in, in the neat little classic by John Hope Franklin on the Emancipation Proclamation that came out 50 years ago called Lincoln's Hundred Days, and other than that, it really hasn't received much attention, right? People have a tendency to say, you know, after Antietam, he issues the preliminary Emancipation Proclamation, and let's fast forward to January 1st. But the document evolves, and it changes, and Lincoln had to respond to some very, very dramatic 
uh, moments during that period between September 22nd, 1862 and January 1st, 1863. So I think that's an essential part of the story of recovering, uh, as, as I argue in the book, and as I'm happy to continue to develop with you here uh, this evening, the case for the importance of the Emancipation Proclamation. Well, given that that's the, the central argument of the book, it's interesting that you actually don't get to the beginning of the 100 days for a number of chapters, that you, the, the proclamation, as you presented, begins evolving really from the start of the war and, yes. and uh, uh, takes shape over a series of months. Yes. Um, yeah, the book let, is designed in, in three parts. So, so mm-hmm. I open with the dramatic moment of you know, Lincoln telling the story and announcing that he's going to issue the, uh, you know, the, the, the proclamation. And then I flash back to the beginning of the war and lead us up, back up to that moment where uh, Lincoln announces it, uh, that he's going to issue it. Uh, then the 100 days is the central portion of the book. Mm-hmm. But then, of course, the story doesn't end on January 1st. The story continues. And so the third part of the book really then picks up the story of uh, emancipation triumphant of uh, Lincoln's phrase, it cannot be retracted. And uh, as with the Conkling letter that we mentioned earlier, many other public letters that he issues, uh, the agitation for the 13th Amendment. So all of that is part, of course, of the longer story of the Emancipation Proclamation. When you at the very beginning of of that story during the war, at least uh, you mentioned the the incident at Fortress Monroe when uh, the, some slaves who have escaped come to the gates of the fort and and are seeking uh, sanctuary, and it's up to to Benjamin Butler to figure out what to do with these people. I was struck by that because there was uh, a book that I I thought highly of that came out last year, uh, Glenn David Brasher's book on uh, emancipation in the Peninsula Campaign. Mm-hmm. And he spends quite a bit of time talking about that incident and how, how Butler's – how those three men were received by the Union Army was really a critical moment. And you seem to, to also say that this is a critical moment. Is Is there an element of contingency here where – if if the soldiers and Butler had decided the other way and, and just turned those refugees away, that none of this would have unfolded? I don't think so. I mean, that's not a counterfactual that, that I would carry out that way, because okay. even if those three had been turned away, what we know is that uh, the enslaved were taking advantage of the dislocations of war and running away uh, to Union lines and delivering themselves. Uh, where, where, where I differ from this kind of older historian's argument, you know, the, the who freed the slaves argument, uh, the argument that it was the enslaved who freed themselves by running away, and I think that has been part of the strain. There, there, there are myriad reasons why uh, stock in the Emancipation Proclamation uh, had declined, if you will, to the point where people People, as you said before, no longer believe it freed the slaves, no longer believe it mattered, no longer believe it was one of the great accomplishments. You know, that, that was one of the arguments. Uh, I think it's significant, of course. The, 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 the activities of the enslaved is crucial, and it put pressure on Lincoln, it put pressure on the generals, but no amount of pressure would have led to the Emancipation Proclamation until Lincoln dealt with and contended with several different strands of argument. Uh, first and foremost being that he did not have the power, the constitutional authority as president to act against slavery. He said it time and again. 
Uh, I'm against slavery. I'm naturally anti-slavery. I cannot recall a time when I did not believe so, but I have never believed that the office conferred upon me the power to abolish or emancipate the slaves. And because slavery was a state institution, it was governed by state law. He had time and again, uh, prior to secession in the war and during, because he never acknowledged the legitimacy of, um, of the Confederate states, uh, that they had relinquished their rights under the Constitution. So it takes time. I mean, the, the key theme that I continue to work through is that notion of change over time. Lincoln is a gradualist. Lincoln is someone who himself said that, you know, I am slow to make up my mind. I am deliberate, confoundingly so, to the radical Republicans and to the abolitionists who are tearing their hair out. I mean, my God, what is wrong with you, man? They're saying, now is the moment. Now is the opportunity. But he knows he doesn't have the authority as president to act. So what has to happen? The doctrine of military necessity, uh, a doctrine that you can see being developed, the argument that he can act under war powers, not act under the executive. Uh, that takes time, but at a certain moment, indeed, he buys that, and, and, and he believes that, and that's the, the doctrine he's going to use that's going to allow him to act when he does. Uh, I mentioned there are other issues as well, but so right there, though, is one of the, the kind of critical questions that intellectually, uh, and constitutionally, Lincoln has to come to terms with before he's willing to act against slavery. But it, you, I think, correctly point out that it's not just Lincoln's own journey. It, it's not his decision alone. He can make the decision anytime he wants, and he talks about how that would be like the Pope's bull against the comet. Uh, he can say right. uh, slavery is over, but he has to get the northern public to go along. And, That's right. Uh, it seems to me one of the key elements there is the evolution of the soldiers' attitude towards slavery because they, they go along faster than the, the civilians back home, and they seem to pull the civilians with them. Exactly, and, and that, is, that is the power of experience, and that is how experience changes people's mind. I quote from diary after diary. Of course, not all soldiers. You know, many of them maintained their attitudes, but in lots of ways... When you take slavery and it's an abstraction and you make it real and these soldiers uh, head south and they see slavery and encounter slaves for the first time, they change their mind and they write about the ways in which they change their mind. I'll, I'll, I'll give you one example from the book. Sure. Um, Charles Wills uh, changed his mind as the war progressed. He enlisted as a private with the 8th Illinois. He rose to be a lieutenant colonel with the 103rd Illinois. In August of 1862, he wrote, We are all rejoicing that Abe refuses to uh, emancipate the slaves and accept the Negroes as soldiers. Aside from the immense disaffection it would create in our army, the South would arm and put in the field three Negroes to R1. Less than a year later, Wills confessed, I never thought I would, but I'm getting thoroughly in favor of arming the slaves and becoming so blind that I can't see why they will not make good soldiers. How queer. A year ago last January, I didn't like to hear anything about emancipation. Last fall, I accepted confiscation quietly. In January, I took to emancipation readily and now believe in arming the Negroes. Now, that's just one anecdote from one soldier, but you're absolutely right, Jerry, that, that Lincoln's own evolutionary position on, for example, black soldiers uh, is is mirrored by what many of the soldiers themselves are going through, and 
uh, if I can just say, this is one of the critical differences between the final proclamation and the preliminary proclamation. So many people don't put those documents side by side and read them. Uh, in the preliminary proclamation, Lincoln is still providing for colonization because he still hasn't figured out what we're going to do with the problem of, uh, of the freedmen. Uh, he no longer mentions colonization on January 1st in the final proclamation, and indeed it's the Emancipation Proclamation that authorizes the enlistment of black soldiers. So there is the change in those hundred days, and, and, uh, and it, it's something that he continues to defend and he continues to argue uh, in favor of all through 63 and 64 as the significance of black troops becomes apparent. And it's interesting, with the soldiers, you can see it, as you point out, for them, slavery is no longer an abstraction. And uh, also, as you point out, it's not as if they all become, uh, you know, culturally uh, elevated in their, their decision to, to support emancipation, that in many cases, it's just pure self-interest. Absolutely. That, that let's let the, the, the black men fight instead of the white men. Sure. But with Lincoln... Why is he changing between September of 62 and January uh, of 63? I mean, he's not being exposed to slavery in a different way. Right. Uh, uh, I, Mike Vorenberg, I've mentioned earlier, has, has looked at Lincoln's personal contacts with African Americans. Mm-hmm. That, to me, does not seem persuasive uh, uh, that, that that would change his mind Right. On, on these major issues. What does right. make him evolve over that 100-day period? Well, look, the, the, I, don't think there's a, I don't think there's a single answer. I, I mean, I think, you know, one could be very crass about it and understand the fact that he needed bodies. Uh, two-year enlistments are about to give up, and he needs soldiers to fight the war, and he recognizes that he's got uh, this, this pool of available men, and why not put them to use? Uh, he becomes convinced of their fighting ability and that by enlisting black soldiers uh you know this this is one of the key issues it's it's discussed over and over again so much so that sometimes the tendency is to uh, minimize its importance but uh but i i don't think we can minimize it and that is kentucky right time and again he was worried about the border states and he's worried that if he acts against slavery and if he were to authorize the list of black soldiers, uh, it would turn Kentucky against the Union. They would leave the Union, and that would be a problem, right? I must have Kentucky. Uh, he says time and time again, uh, he changes his mind. He says the bare sight, right, of 50,000 armed and trained black soldiers on the banks uh, will, will help to facilitate the end of the war. So uh, there's a variety of, of reasons, and I think he's also moving toward the understanding uh, as Frederick Douglass and others are pushing, that you know, freedom won uh, by the white man alone uh, would not be significant from the point of view of of, um, of the slaves. So uh, there there are several different strands coming together by which you know the need for men, the belief that by arming them he will help to win the war. That for every uh, slave who runs away from their master and enlists in the Union Army, that's a double benefit. It's one less for the Confederacy, one more for the Union, uh, that it will not have precarious uh, results on states such as Kentucky, and that indeed, ultimately, black men are entitled uh, to the, the opportunity to fight for their own freedom. One of the arguments that uh, one sees, certainly in, in textbooks and other places, is that the, the proclamation was intended uh, at least partly 
to influence foreign affairs and to uh, make it impossible for Britain and France to intervene without endorsing slavery, which they were not prepared to do. Um, we've just got a minute before the break. What, what's the short answer to that? Oh, that's not fair. <laughs> we'll talk come back and talk, one of the, talk about one of the long, tortured, complicated issues. The short answer is the story of unintended consequences in history. The short answer is that if Lincoln and others thought that the issuing of an Emancipation Proclamation would make Britain and France uh, be more supportive of the Union course and not intervene on the side of Confederacy, it almost has the opposite effect. Uh, it doesn't, and by the end of those hundred days, I think it's clear that uh, Great Britain will not intervene. Well, we'll stop on that mo- moment. We'll take another short break, come back, talk more with Lou Major about Lincoln's hundred days, the, the period between the preliminary and final emancipation proclamations. Uh, it's a fascinating moment uh, that, that really shapes the course of the war and history since then. We'll talk more about it in just a moment on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G 
at ecu.edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back. We're talking today with Lou Major, author of Lincoln's Hundred Days. Lou, we've been talking about the proclamation as uh, uh, from Lincoln's point of view and, and from those who came to support it, like the, the, the soldiers, the Union soldiers. But it's, it, it's, for me, it's the hardest thing to teach students uh, to, to recreate the, the unknowability of the future in the eyes of past people. That is to say, no one in October 1862 knew if Lincoln would actually sign it, and if he did, what would happen. Uh, no one knew what would happen, Lincoln least of all. So what about the opposition? I mean, it, it was not at all a done deal uh, in those months. It may have been in Lincoln's mind, but there was there were a lot of people who didn't approve the, of the proclamation. Uh, well, uh, that, that, that's absolutely right. And, and again, you put your finger on something very important about the contingency, the anxiety. I mean, imagine it. Imagine it. You know, when, when I've talked to students about this or I've given lectures about this, the, the only thing that I sometimes bring up is the, the anxiety about Y2K. Do you remember that? When you <laughs> yes. know, everybody wondered what was going to happen on January 1st, 2000, uh, were computers going to stop running? Were nuclear reactors going to explode? I mean, there was real palpable anxiety, and of course, nothing happened, and now it would be very hard to recover that sense of dread. Well, that's what the looming deadline meant for Americans. Uh, the, and over those hundred days, the document was debated, it was contested, uh, it, was, it was reviled, people denounced it, people said uh, it would lead to bloodshed and insurrection. And time and again, there were pivotal moments that people believe would lead Lincoln to either retract it or postpone it, most significantly the elections of 1862 that come right smack in the middle of this period, uh, those off-year elections, which people said, okay, fine, September 22nd, he issues this document, in October, November, various states go to the polls, this will be a referendum on Lincoln's policy, let's see how people vote, and the upshot was absolute destruction for the Republican Party. Uh, they they lost the House. They lost 20-something seats in the House. They lost uh, governorships. They lost uh, all sorts of uh, important um, standing and seats. Uh, even Lincoln's home district uh, was, was lost to a, to a Democrat. And out of these elections, uh, people come away and say, well, Abe, you know, good try with the Emancipation Proclamation. You know, it was a nice idea. Clearly the electorate has rejected this. And what's fascinating is, and I go through this in some detail, is to see the way in which Lincoln says, no, I choose to offer a different interpretation of the meaning of the elections of 1862, which was a repudiation of the Republican Party. He says it was an election that was about war weariness. It was an election that was about the way in which the war was being fought. It was not about the Emancipation Proclamation. And he is quoted as telling one delegation who comes to visit him uh, after the election results, I would rather die than take back a word of the Proclamation of Freedom. So you are absolutely right. Uh, many people believe that, especially with the result of those elections, that Lincoln won't dare go through with it. Uh, not only does he continue to go through with it, as I argue, 
uh, he revises the document to include the enlistment of black soldiers, to eliminate colonization, uh, to even write into it a more forceful line at the end, even though we know it's, it's a document that's written as uh, a military necessity document from the commander-in-chief. He even writes into it at the end saying that he sincerely believes this to be an act of justice. Well, it, it's also worth remembering just how how bad a time that was for the Union militarily. Exactly. That, that uh, the Battle of Fredericksburg takes place in December. Um, there, there's, I suppose, a glimmer of, of hope with the uh, Battle at Stones River, although that, that's contemporaneous with uh, the signing of the proclamation. But it's things are not going well. The war is not going well at all. And, the war is uh, not going well. Uh Politically, things are not going well. I mean, Lincoln's cabinet crisis mm-hmm. is, is in December. Uh, so there's a lot of scheming going on internally uh, with respect to what's happening. Uh, I mean, the man, uh, no doubt, as, as he always did, uh, had, had a tremendous amount uh, on his plate. I mean, he was, he was suffering. Uh, I, I, Noah Brooks saw him in church in November of that year, and he described the president as this. His hair is grizzled, his gait more stooping, his countenance sallow. There is a sunken, deathly look about the large, cavernous eyes, which is saddening to those who see there the marks of care and anxiety, such as no president has ever before taken. Uh, history may not have faulted him if at that point he got cold feet and said, okay, let's hold off here. Let's see what happens with the war. Let's not act against slavery. But, uh, but indeed, he, he doesn't, despite all of the opposition, that was mounting to the act that he had announced on September 22nd and which he was now going to follow through with. He, he faces not just the big challenges, the cabinet crisis, uh, the battlefield defeats, but also the kind of things uh, that, that leaders get, uh, the, these little things like uh, a particular civilian writing about the return of a, an individual slave that he wants. Says, I'm, I'm a loyal man. I want my slave back. The army right. has him. Uh, and Lincoln has to face letters like that, and and you record that he he wrote back to uh, a, a civilian, uh, the the, uh, the Judge Robertson case. Yes, uh, I I find that a particularly interesting moment. Uh, you you thought it was worth including. What what did you see in it? Well, it, it, it it's in, it's important because again it shows uh, how far Lincoln is and and isn't you know, willing to go in terms of uh, people sort of playing on, you know, the friendships, right, and, and, and playing on those sorts of things. Of course, this comes, uh, I believe, what, I forget the date off the top of my head. Um, as, I want to say it's in December, uh, uh, but I, uh, no, I'm just guessing at that. Yeah, yeah, it's, I'm not sure. It may come, it may come, uh, it, it, it may come a little bit, um, a little bit later, but, but he's mm-hmm. getting... As you say, all kinds of of letters appealing to him directly uh, about about slave property, and of course, look earlier on uh, with respect to D.C. emancipation, he holds off signing the bill, and mm-hmm. it gets at the complexity here that's going on. Now, why does he hold off signing the bill? Well, you know, if we are are, are to believe a, a later diary entry, uh, it's because someone had an elderly slave and wanted to get him out of Washington because under the terms of the bill that person would have been left, you know, without any kind of paternalistic mechanisms or controls. You know, Charles Sumner explodes. He says, Lincoln is the largest slaveholder in the country. By waiting till Monday to sign the bill to allow um, people to leave 
those who are going to with their slave property. So, you know, the the human dimension is is important to recover. I mean, these are not easy sort of absolute questions of, uh, I mean, there may be absolute questions of right and wrong, but when you get down to the details of the lives involved, uh, as you point out very well, Lincoln struggled with the personal decisions at that level. And if I can just add, Jerry, mm-hmm. while we're talking about this period, November, December of 1862, uh, you know, I think that he writes probably one of the greatest private letters ever written, uh, no mm-hmm. less by him, when he learns that um, a friend of his, you know, Colonel William McCullough of the 4th Illinois Cavalry had been killed in battle. And on December 23rd, I mean, think about that date, Lincoln writes to McCullough's daughter, Fanny, you know, this, this incredible letter in which he talks about the sad world of ours and that sorrow comes to us all and how perfect relief is not possible. And yet he goes on to say, you are sure to be happy again. To know this, which is certainly true, will make you less miserable now. I mean, how remarkable. Uh, and let's not forget his son had died earlier the year in February. So you are sure to be happy again. These, this is the man, right? This is, this, is, this is Lincoln the man, not Lincoln the myth, not Lincoln the, the, the statue of marble. Uh, this is someone who is sussing through and living through unbelievably complicated uh, times, both politically and personally, and who triumphed. Uh, and, and, and I think that's, uh, that's really significant to, to keep in mind uh, as, we, as we think about that moment. And, and if I could just add one other thing, uh, sure. you know, uh, we, we just recently had the 50th anniversary of the March on Washington, and a lot of people forget about Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, famous I Have a Dream speech, that it opens with a mention of Lincoln and the centennial of the Emancipation Proclamation. And he refers to Lincoln and the Emancipation Proclamation as a beacon light of hope. King understood that what ended up happening with respect to the story of freedom wasn't the fault of Lincoln's or the Emancipation Proclamation. And he issues a call to sort of, you know, make a new effort, right, a second Emancipation Proclamation, if you will, to give meaning to freedom. Uh, I, think, I think King was more on, 50 years ago, the importance and significance of the Emancipation Proclamation than, than many others have been, uh, both before and since. I, I find it remarkable how few books have been written about this document. Uh, you mentioned John Hope Franklin, uh, Alan Gelzo. Of course. Uh, there have been book, some, yes. some right. uh, collections of essays have come out. Right. But for a document so central, it really is, is surprising. I, some of it might be due to the, the the literary quality of it, the the, the bill of lading quality, as, as Hofstetter described it. Uh, rather that, that it's not soaring like like his other work, but it, it right. does seem to me quite surprising. Well, its stock, you know, was down, as I said, and and even within those works, and and I admire greatly both John Hope Franklin's work and Alan Gelzo's work, which was very influential in my own thinking. Uh, this 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 critical hundred day period, as I said, is is not examined, I think, nearly closely enough. And uh, and again, what you what you asked me about before, you know, it's very easy to say. Uh, it didn't really free the slaves. Uh, of course, it did not touch the slaves in the four border states, slave states that remained in the Union. Uh, the exceptions that were made 
were made in order to justify the principle of military necessity. Uh, you know, there, there's a letter that Chase writes to Lincoln early, I think, in, in 63, where he says, okay, you know, let's, let's get rid of those exceptions. And Lincoln writes back this blistering letter filled with rhetorical questions about, you know, consistency and policy and, and, and how can we say that this was done as an act of military necessity if we're now going to free the slaves where there is no military necessity. Now, even having said that, on paper at least, you know, the document freed, you know, I mean, leaving aside a couple hundred thousand slaves in the border states and those in the, uh, in, in the exempted areas, you know, however you want to say it, whatever, whatever the numbers are, um, you know, 3.2, 3.3 million out of 4 million, uh, you know, it, it freed them. Now, did they have that freedom? Did they own that freedom? No. But word spread, and that's the other significant thing, you know, soldiers marched through the South. There were little miniature emancipation proclamations handed out, and the enslaved knew what that document meant. I'm looking at one of those right now. We have uh, I have a, a replica from the museum I used to work in. Oh, that's wonderful. Uh, yeah. But that's the other point. So even if you want to argue, as some people do, that the document didn't free anyone, well, tell that to the tens and thousands of slaves who, after January 1st, picked up and left, because as far as they were concerned, they were now freed. And everywhere the army went, right, it went as an army of liberation. No, yeah. It, it, if we had hours more to go, we could talk about how uh, it, it clarifies the status of those escaping slaves who are in a legal limbo before the proclamation, but are very clearly free afterwards if they do manage to get away. That's exactly uh, right. And, so, then, and, then, and it also helps us to explain why the 13th Amendment then becomes the next critical step. So Lincoln will continue to defend emancipation. And, of course, the 13th Amendment he wants, as he says, because that's the king's cure, right? That, that, if the that emancipation proclamation freed the slaves, uh, the 13th Amendment, of course, abolishes slavery. Well, on that point... We've run out of time much too quickly, as always. Uh, but Lou, it's been a great pleasure talking to you, and it was really a pleasure to read this book. Uh, the listeners, you want to get a copy of Lincoln's 100 Days, The Emancipation Proclamation and the War for the Union by Lewis P. Major. It is uh, a, a really enlightening and stimulating account of something we all thought we knew a lot about. Uh, you'll want to read it. And Lou, thanks so much for being on the show tonight. Well, thanks so much again, Jerry, for having me. I really appreciate it. And listeners, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.